yes, Jesus did some teaching in the temple, but the truth is almost every story you know about Jesus is not what he was teaching in the temple. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't what was being done in formal teaching moments. But most of the stories you know are things that happened on the street when he interacted with people unexpectedly. So uh, my goal, our goal here, has been to learn more about this man um, by understanding who he was when the spotlight, in a sense, was off. So we've been looking at these conversations all summer. I'm going to be finishing up the series next week, um, but today we have a, a guest speaker who's becoming a little bit of a family to us here. Mr. Andrew Berry is uh, back with us again. He is Tim's dad. You might remember he was here with us uh, probably about a year ago. So Andrew, come on up. Welcome him if you would. You're a little bit too eager to, to, to knock me off the pulpit here and get going. You said to finish it <laughs> 20 past. Oh, they're, past they're, yeah. <laughs> they're just as happy. Trust me. They're, they're. So welcome, Andrew. Thank Thanks, you. buddy. Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Um, <coughs> I have the privilege of dedicating uh, my grandson four weeks ago. So I want to relate to my brother from India uh, very much. What a great privilege to have a son and potentially a grandson down the road. Um, yeah, everybody should get a grandson. Everybody buys it. It's good news, you know? They don't like children. You know, you, you get to have fun with them, spoil them, and then give them back. <laughs> Do you remember the days of your parents when you first brought that child home, your first child, from the hospital? Do you remember those days? Anybody put their hand up remember those days? And you woke up the next morning, or maybe in the middle of the night, and you looked at your wife or your husband and you said, what have we done? <laughs> I've got to turn this microphone on. There you go. My son is perfect. You're invited to Yeah. And you look at your wife or your husband and you say, what have we done? What do we do now? It's unlike marriage, because you picked your spouse, right? You sort of had some choice in that business. And you sort of knew what you're getting to, and you went through this whole rigmarole of getting to know a person, and, and, you know, and then you hummed and hard, and then you got engaged, and then your parents met, and... It... <sighs> you remember those days as well, right? But, but, that's but then a child, you don't choose that child. That child is given to you. And you come home and it's like, what have we done? What do we do now? And in a sense, that's what we're going to look at for the disciples right now. They've spent three years knowing Jesus. Some of them have known Jesus a longer time. Some of them are actually his cousins as well. If you do the sort of fairly careful Bible study, you figure out that John and James are actually his cousins on his mother's side. But that's a minor point. Some of them he probably grew up with, he knew of them. Some of them were people he wouldn't normally collect. So there's 12 disciples and his family, his brothers and his sisters, and they're all meeting together in Acts chapter 1. And... They've known him three years, probably two years they've traveled with him because his first year we know very little about his public ministry. The only thing we know for sure is that he turned water into wine during his first year of ministry. Sounds like good ministry to me. I lived in France. <laughs> two years they've been walking with him. And then we know particularly the last six months very well as he heads towards to Jerusalem to die. And his parables and his teaching, it, a lot of it is in that time frame for his disciples. He's had a year of very public ministry. He fed 5,000 people. 
And you know their hopes got dashed because they had thought, you remember the words of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had thought that he was the Messiah and then those nasty Romans killed him. And not only that, the religious leaders had rejected him and conspired with the Romans to do that. So you have the religious world and you have the political world working together to kill Jesus. It's not a pretty scenario. And then he rises from the dead. And they become convinced of it. And that's where our story picks up in the book of Acts as we look at this final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Look at me in Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what it was like. They'd be eating together. We know some of the stories. They were eating together, and he appeared. In, they were behind locked doors, and he was there. And you remember one occasion, Thomas said, had previously said the week before, I'm not going to believe he's alive unless I actually put my finger in the hole in his wrist and shove my fist in the nail nails in the spear side hole in his side. And the next week, Jesus was there, and guess what? He already knew what Thomas had said the previous week. And he said, hey, Thomas, come here. Stick your finger in. Shove your fist in the side. And then he ate some fish and some bread. They spent time together. They talked together. I met 40 days' worth. I don't know what was going through their minds. How long is this going to go on for? What's going to happen? So that's what's happening. And I noticed two characteristics of these disciples during these days. Number one, they know that Jesus had chosen them. They know that Jesus had chosen them. And in a sense, every Christian, everybody who chooses to put their trust in Jesus, at some point gets to realize also that God was involved in that and was choosing them. Don't ask me to explain it more than that. It's very difficult. And don't get too emphatic on one or the other. Just do both. I trust in Jesus. Jesus chose me. Live with it. <laughs> it's like children. You didn't get to choose that child, and no child I know got to choose their parents. And yet somehow every child with healthy family knows that they're very special and they're chosen as well. It's weird. It's how life is, isn't it? Weird and real at the same time. These disciples knew they were chosen. They actually knew in a very real sense that Jesus handpicked them. He said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men, as they were fishing for fish. He looked at the tax collector and said, hey, leave that. Settle up your debts with all the people. Pay them back. Come, follow me. They'd actually physically chosen them as well. Some of you perhaps experienced a personal idea of a call from God. It's kind of a bit weird, in a sense, God, who I can't see, calls me to do something. Yeah, he did me. I felt called into ministry. I was an unlikely candidate to be called into ministry, to be really honest with you. Because <laughs> it wasn't pretty when I was 19. Not in, one st one, in any sense of the word. 
And the second thing I noticed about these people is that these people, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. They were absolutely dead certain that he was risen from the dead. Not only had he died for them, and they understand that, they understood the theological ideas, they understood that they were forgiven because he took the punishment on the cross, he'd explained that to them, but they were also convinced that he'd risen from the dead and that God had said what Jesus did was good enough. There's nothing to hold Jesus in the grave. He has none of his own sin, he's died for other people. They were absolutely convinced that he was risen from the dead. And friends, one of the problems we face in church all across the world, your country, the country I live in, France, wherever it is, all across the world, people are not properly convinced that there's one who died and rose from the dead and is coming back again. They've got Jesus in there somewhere, but they're not convinced that this life is only about 70 years and eternity is forever. Because Jesus' resurrection proves that eternity is forever, and that's for us as his followers, as his disciples. And when we can get that in our heads straight, we'll start to take risks for him to do his stuff for him while we're here on earth. So these disciples, they're 40 days. They know who they are. They're convinced that Jesus is who he is. And they ask this very pertinent question. Sorry, in verses four and five, he promises them. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, for which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He promised them that even though he was going to go away, he would send them somebody just like himself, that's the words from John chapter 14, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's couched in the language of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Are you in the mood for a little technical stuff this morning? I won't bore you. It's very dangerous when I don't know a congregation. Seven times in the New Testament, the word baptized is used. It's literally just a Greek word, baptizo. Bapto means to dip, idzo means repeatedly. So baptizo means to dunk repeatedly. Classically, it's three times, which is why churches sometimes baptize three times or sprinkle water three times. Once is fine. It shows the symbolism. It's good, you know. So it's dipped. Seven times, it's used with the word Jesus and the Holy Spirit and you in it. So there's a very technical idea that comes in. There's always somebody who baptizes. There's always somebody who receives the baptism. There's always what somebody is baptized with and there's always a result of that baptism. Yeah? That's English language. It's Greek language as well. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is always the subject in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit. So he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Remember John the Baptist in John chapter one said, behold the Lamb of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who does the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. Who's the subject? Who, I say, who's the object? Who gets the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Everybody who trusts in Jesus, us, believers. Jesus baptizes us. We're the object. What does he baptize us with? He baptizes us with or by or in, technically, the Holy Spirit. 
And then he uses this little word in some places, the little word ice in Greek, with Greek, which means unto, with the result that you belong to the body of Christ. So every person who trusts in Jesus is baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That's not just this congregation here. That's the body of Christ around the world. Now, you don't have a problem with that. But if you're a believer in Algeria and you don't know a single other Christian, it's enormously encouraging to know that you belong to the body of Christ, which exists from Pentecost all the way to the return of Jesus. That's really an encouraging thing. And these people, the disciples, were waiting for this event to happen for the first time. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2, how it happened for the first time. God has a thing about first times. He makes a big deal of them. So in Acts chapter 2, all kinds of exciting things happen when this first time that this baptism ever happened for people. It's the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. So the disciples are waiting for the promise. We could look at some of the ministers of the Holy Spirit, we won't, but friends, we need the Spirit of God in our lives. If you want to be a successful Christian, if you want to live your life for Jesus, not how you used to live your life before you were Christian, you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I need him, your pastor needs him, my son needs him, their wives especially need them, because they've got to live with them. You need him. These early disciples needed the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself didn't conduct his public ministry until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we will be very arrogant if we say, I don't need the Holy Spirit in my life. I can do it by myself. Thank you very much. We don't want to be in that place, do we? None of us likes arrogant people. Don't be there. John baptized with water, but in a few days, actually 10 more days from the 40, 50 days, Pentecost, it was one of the great feasts of Israel. God sort of fills these things up which are predicted in the Old Testament in their feasts. And I wonder if the disciples went, hmm, 40 days since Passover, 10 more days till Pentecost, the Ingala. I bet you that's when it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, because they understood how God works from the Old Testament. So in 10 days' time, it would happen. So when they met together, they asked him, and here's the question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are we going to be doing, God? What are we going to do, Lord? What's happening? What's your program? What's your agenda? And they ask it in terms of what's important to them. You see, they remember all the promises God made to the King David and all the promises in the prophets that one day Israel would not be subjected to the Roman Empire, that it would be a great kingdom again. And Jesus was clearly the man to do the job. Clearly. He conquered death. You can't keep him in the grave. You can kill him, but guess what? He comes back again. Does that sound weird? Not anymore, because we have comic books to do the same thing, right? <laughs> but it really did happen in this case. And so their concern is about God's agenda, because they also knew from the Old Testament that the nation of Israel has a special place in God's program for all of mankind. Still has a special place. It's in interruptus mode at the moment. So they say, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Here's Jesus' answer. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says to them, it will happen, but I'm not telling you when. In other words, get on with what I want you to do now. Trust me with the other stuff. The phrase here, and I'm going to get technical again because it's kind of interesting if you're a guy like me who studied his Bible a long time. You look at it and it says, it is not to you to know the times or the dates. And Luke, the writer, uses a little phrase which he pulls out of Daniel chapter 2. <laughs> Anybody read the book of Daniel recently? <laughs> yeah out of Daniel chapter two, where Daniel is explaining to Nebuchadnezzar the history of mankind, and he says, God sets the times and the dates, and he raises kings up, and he puts kings down. And it's clearly a phrase, which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is grabbed out of there. It's used again in 1 Thessalonians chapter five and one, where the Thessalonian Christians asked Paul, hey, what about the times and the seasons, the times and the dates? They want to know what the future holds. Who doesn't want to know what the future holds? Well, probably we're better off not knowing what the future holds. <laughs> and they ask, hey, Jesus says, I'm not telling you. It's not for you to know. Just trust me. When it's going to happen, the times and the dates and the things for the future, they will happen and I will make them happen and they're going to happen at the right time, in the right place and in the right way. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> Do we have to be worried about which president is going to get elected? You're all meant to say, no, we're not meant to worry because that's in God's hands. The problem is we live in a democracy, don't we? So we get a little say in that whole business, yeah? <laughs> but let's be, we need to commit those things to the Lord and trust him. We really do. Now, it's easy to say that in America because it's relatively peaceful, it's democracy. But imagine you live in a country like India where there's a Hindu nationalist party presently in power and where they're threatening to put all the Christians in jail and kill them in various different states. And you go along and say to those people, hey, don't worry, don't worry. God's in control. It's a little more real for those folks, isn't it? Imagine you're a Syrian Christian, and you're wondering, shall I flee ISIS with my family? And you really are a Christian. You may be a nominal Christian, but you might actually be a true Christian, an evangelical, one who trusts personally in Jesus Christ. The mission I work with works with a number of those folks in Syria as well as in Jordan. And you say to yourself, do I need to flee ISIS, get out of this country at this point? Because four million of my fellow countrymen have fled and they're killing us like, like mosquitoes. And you read this idea in Daniel chapter 2 and this passage here, and it says, yeah, I raise up kings and I pull them down. That's what God says. It's a little more real, isn't it? And Jesus says to the disciples, quit worrying about the politics. I'm going to do that stuff. I'm going to take care of it. Now, we know it's been 2,000 years so far. 
you ought to say amen to that as well, because if it happened 100 years ago, you wouldn't be here. Yeah? You would be non-existent. So we don't know when the end comes. We don't know when the times of the end. We don't know when the day of the Lord is coming. We don't know any of that stuff. And that's what Jesus repeatedly taught to his disciples and those who would listen in the Gospels as well. The disciples, though, are going to themselves, hey, Jesus has done the ultimate act. He's come back from the dead. Now must be the time, not just the sufferings, but the glory. Isn't this the moment, Jesus? And he says, no, nope. I'm not telling you when it is. It's not for you to know. Trust me, it's not for you to know. But, second part of the thing, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's now telling the disciples what they need to be doing and he's telling them how they need to do it and he's going to tell them at the end why they should be doing it as well. What all of us want to know, right? Essentially, that's a good process for bringing up children. You need to tell them what they're meant to be doing. They need to be telling them how they should be doing it. And the last thing, at some point, they want to go, why? <laughs> and you tell them why they should be doing it. You don't explain to a three-year-old necessarily how to do it. You just tell them what to do. Help me with the dishes. And then you start to teach them how to do it. And at some point when they're 12 or 13, you say, because you want to eat, don't you? <laughs> and if you don't help with gifts of service to this family, then guess what? You don't get to eat. You're a miserable citizen in this family. So you explain why to them you taught them all this stuff. <laughs> don't be scared of being tough on your children. I can say that now. <laughs> it worked. He's telling them what they should do. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Some commentators say, oh, there's sort of four levels of being witnesses for Jesus. There's your local level, the Jerusalem level. There's the community level or maybe your state level in this country where that's the um, Judea. And then there's the, the sort of the next door, that's the Canadians or the Mexicans and that's the... Uh, Judea area, sorry, the Samaria area, and then there's to the ends of the earth, that's, well, that's Europe. <laughs> and wherever else God leads you. And in fact, today in the world, in terms of missions, the mission I'm involved with, we are trying to get people from everywhere to go everywhere. You know, if it depended upon the American church to win the rest of the world to Christ, we have failed miserably. If the English church in 1910 depended upon the English church, because it was the powerhouse in 1910, believe it or not, to win the rest of the world to Jesus, it has failed. But how can we get South Americans, Brazilians, to go to Europe to win people for Jesus? Can they do it? How do we help them do it? What does it look like when they do do it? It's kind of an interesting challenge. We've got Brazilians in Ireland. If you know anything about Southern Ireland, 30 years ago, you could count 500 evangelical Christians. That is 500 people who knew, said they had a personal relationship with God through Jesus personally. 
It's a bigger church than that. And we've got Brazilians there, you know, hyper, happy Brazilians. <laughs> In a Catholic country, which has just voted to have homosexual marriage. Yeah, God's in charge of this stuff. It's weird, bizarre what's happening in the world. But the command is still the same. Go be my witnesses. Go be it locally, next door, here, and further afield. It reminds me of that passage in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus gives the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 says this, verses 16 through 20. When the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The command in the passage is not to go. I know if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard preachers say, it says go. It doesn't say go. It only says go in your English Bible. In the Greek, it says, as you are going, and then it says the command, make disciples. Yeah? That's the command. So it's an assumed assumption that you'll be going about your stuff. You'll be doing your business. Churches will sometimes set apart special people to go be missionaries. Fine. But it's a command for everybody that as you're going, doing your stuff, here's the command, you make disciples. That is, people who follow Jesus by obeying him. That's what it means. To make He explains it. Make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So the next step after baptism, baptism is that people learn what Jesus taught and wanted so they can go do it. It's the same process with raising up children, isn't it? I actually just saw this on your counter. Free plug for you, Pastor John. Groups. You know, it's one thing to get baptized. It's one thing to come to church on Sunday morning and listen to the visiting speaker. The rate is part of the process. But if you want to get down and dirty and real, and let the Holy Spirit speak to you through other people in a small group, this is what you need to get signed up for. This is where community happens. This is where prayer happens. This is where you learn to be a disciple, a learner. Go signed up for a group. That's free for you, John, all right? I expect an extra 100 bucks in the paycheck. In the passage you just read, which feeds into the passage and acts about being witnesses, Jesus says, go do my business. Be witnesses, make disciples for me. For the next 2,000 years, you'll notice the word all is repeated several times in that passage. They're meant to, lost my page, all authority has been given. We live in a day and age where there are so many authorities out there, right? Are you scared about being politically correct? In Europe, it's horrible. This church is not politically correct. I walked into the kitchen and there's a sign which says zero tolerance about cleaning up or something. And the very last thing in the box it says, remember, your sisters will have to clean up behind you if you don't. And I'm looking at it going, whoa, what about the brothers? <laughs> it's just the sisters who have to do that in this church. This is awesome for a guy. <laughs> Political correctness. 
Should we be, no, Jesus has all authority. It's been given to him. I live in a country where there are more people who are Muslims than are associated with the legal state church, the Church of England. That's not all Christians, because not all Christians are belonging to the state church. In actual fact, you might argue that a lot of people who are belonging to the state church aren't in fact Christians, yeah? Because it's liberal, doesn't believe the word of God, there's no life there. But that's a lot of people. And you sort of go, can I actually talk to these people about Jesus? Yes, because Jesus has all authority given to him. Should we be wise in how we use that authority? You bet we should be wise. Should we be scared? Well, if we're human, we might be. <laughs> but we need to rest assured on this great promise that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. We go in that light and that light only. John Stott said this, nothing is more important for the recovery of the church's mission where it has been lost or its development where it is weak than a fresh, clear and comprehensive vision of Jesus Christ when he is demeaned, and especially when he is denied in the fullness of his unique person and work, the church lacks motivation and direction, our morale crumbles, and our mission disintegrates. But when we see Jesus, not just the Jesus on the cross, but the risen Jesus who conquered death, the risen Jesus who has all authority given to him by the Father, it is enough. We have all the inspiration, incentive, authority, and power we need. I like that phrase. We've got everything we need. All power is given to me. The passage in Matthew 28 says we should go to all nations. Now, sometimes the nations come to us, like they are in England, like the refugees are flooding into southern Europe and heading across to northern Europe at the moment. We've got a grand opportunity, the church in Europe does, to try and reach refugees. Sometimes we have to go find people. Sometimes it's just our neighbours. It's across the street, across the state, across the country, or across the world. But we should go, the end for the church, that's Christ's big body, is all the nations. You read the book of Revelation and you realise that at the end of time, all the nations will be worshipping. The question is, are we going to have a part in that of them getting there? He says that we are, he is always with us unto the end of the age. That idea of God being with us when we do his work for him is probably repeated 10 times. Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Hebrews, Matthew 28 here. When we are doing God's business, he promises to be with us. It's an enormous promise for us. He is with us to the end of the age. We're to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 finishes with the why in the last few verses as we wrap up this morning. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Why should we do what Jesus, how should we do what Jesus said to do? Why should we do it? Because in fact, he's promised to come again. He's returning. There is an end to this age. Somebody say amen. 
There is an end to the kingdoms of this world. There is an end to human democracies. There is an end to dictatorships. There is an end to suffering. And it's when Jesus comes back. So we need to get busy making disciples as his people with the power of the Holy Spirit so when he comes, his bride will be radiant. We're going to sing a song to close as the band comes up. I have decided to be a follower of Jesus. And the idea of follower is not just somebody who toddles on behind like your little two-year-old does. A follower is a, is a disciple, it's a learner. It's somebody who wants to learn what Jesus did and obey what Jesus taught. When we're learners, we can make disciples and other people will become learners as well. So as you sing this song, don't just think follower. Think disciple. Think learner. I want to do what Jesus wants me to do because he's coming back again.